You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable and fixed blade knives and game processing kits. Now, in my bag this year, I had the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit. It comes in a very compact, handy carrying case, and one handle has the replaceable blade knife and the gutting blade. The other handle has the saw that comes with it. So I use the saw to split the pelvis and I use the gut hook to open up the cavity and the blade to start cutting all the stuff out, right? So uh, it makes cleaning a deer very simple, very easy, and the the knife is sharp. And uh, if you've ever had to gut a deer with a dull knife, we all know how much that sucks. So, um, Take a look at the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit and uh, head on over to OutdoorEdge.com and enter the discount code NATION30. That's NATION30 for 30% savings on your purchase. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back to the Land and Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Matt Dye, and we've got an awesome week ahead of us with um, this podcast as we're joining and jumping into week two of the Turkey Management Podcast, and I'm joined by Frank Longcarriage of the Land and Legacy Consulting Team. He is a passionate turkey hunter, um, but extremely knowledgeable through research and through uh, just a passion and drive of understanding the wild turkey and its behavior, life history traits, and um, that's what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to give a well-rounded um understanding of of what a turkey goes through both male and female throughout an entire year so that in the weeks to come when we bring on other specialists um, that we can really understand and use this podcast to reference back to the importance of what it means to breed successfully understand breeding seasons and behaviors as well as nesting behavior as well as nesting success brood rearing success and 
what really it takes to bring a turkey from an egg all the way up to an adult. How do we manage the habitat to be able to do that? So um, this podcast is, is I would say it's more than an introduction with the amount of information that, that is given um, by Frank, but he is going to really walk us through all that a turkey needs and requires throughout you know a, time, a year's time frame. So um, it's going to again, give us a great basis to be able to learn off of as we dive deeper in the weeks to come. So before we do that, let's give a quick shout out to First Light, firstlight.com. Check it out. Amazing apparel. We all wear from hunting season, turkey season, consulting when we're out just doing field work to deer season. We're in First Light gear and love it. Keeps us dry, warm, cool, protected, all at the same time. And we are huge fans of the gear. So if you haven't checked out firstlight.com, do yourself a favor, check it out, get some gear, and enjoy. Thank you, First Light, for being a part of this podcast and making it possible. Now, without further ado, let's hear and bring on Mr. Frank. All right, Frank, are you there? I'm here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Man, you're always welcome on this podcast and i'm ready so ready for turkeys like and you're, so yeah. ready for turkeys <laughs> i am too uh, yeah it's uh it's especially you know this these last couple of days here in, in south missouri have been mm-hmm. I mean, great spring days and especially after the the wicked winter weather we had a couple of weeks ago it just it just can't get here soon enough. Yeah, we're coming off the heels of that winter weather, it's like everyone now is certainly wishing and hoping for spring, and there's there's little signs of spring um, kind of popping up and appearing mm-hmm. everywhere we go. Um, last week we're in Iowa. This week I'm in Ohio. Tomorrow Adam's going to be in Oklahoma. You guys have been in southern Missouri. And it's it's, you know, all the little signs that you could, you know, see across the landscape. It's like, wow, we're getting there. I mean, it, it's it's coming, there. it's coming close, and um, that just means it's super exciting time of the year. And we're gonna dive right into turkeys. And I and I think the the goal of this podcast for everyone listening, obviously, we're in our turkey management series, the wild turkey. Um, we're going to go through several weeks of, of great quality information, sticking to, to scientific research-based stuff to give uh, everyone the most current information and then how to go and take that information and apply it to the landscape. So today we're going to give a, a big overview of what turkeys are, what they're not, um, what they do, what they don't do, and paint this picture of the life cycles that turkeys go through every single day um, throughout every single year because there's there's always, you know, the common myths, the common um, theories out there that float around, but, but this is going to paint the picture of what this bird does and what it doesn't do or what it uses and what it doesn't use. Um, and so from there, in the weeks to come, we can go even further into these life cycles, these traits that make up and consist of, of wild turkey behavior, habitat, diets, and life cycles. So, Frank, you love turkey hunting, but you have a, you have a big passion and a knowledge base about the wild turkey. So 
Um, today, people are going to hear a lot from you regarding the information and knowledge that you've gained through research um, about the wild turkey and just that that passion. So I'm going to be fielding a lot of questions back to you as we're as we're yeah. going through this podcast. So in in essence, I think I think if we start. Um, with the age-old question, what came first, the turkey or the turkey egg? Like, where, where do you want to start at? Do you want to start at, like, the adult um, side of things, or do you want to go down to, you know, let's well, say, nesting behavior? I'll tell you what. Let's, um, let's, let's start, like, where we're at right now in, sure. the, in the, the year. So Calendary. let's start I like March. it. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And then we'll just proceed. We'll go to the, the annual cycle. And, I love and, it. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that, that I have a passion towards turkeys and, and, and that is absolutely true. I grew up in uh far Southwest Missouri and, um, we, we had turkeys, but this, that part of the state had, had struggled. So we're talking about the eighties and early nineties that, that part of the state, and it still struggles today in terms of Turkey numbers. And, um, my dad was a, was a diehard turkey hunter, and he got me into it. And I think that the that the relative rarity of turkeys really spurred my passion because this was a bird that was mm. exceedingly hard to hunt down here. So in 1995, for instance, in in, in Newton County in Missouri, uh, I killed a turkey on opening morning, one of Do five you... turkeys killed that you... entire season in Newton County. Oh, my so, gosh. Yeah, so we're talking 1995. We're we're not talking. You want to know how old I was in 1995? No, don't even tell. Me. <laughs> I, I don't. Know. What? I was three. You were three. <laughs> okay, three. perfect, perfect. All right, perfect. Uh, uh, okay, so just at that stage, were, when you were even barely saying the word turkey, I was <laughs> killing them left I and was, right. I was a fresh. I was a freshman in college, and I remember I killed a turkey in Newton County. One of five killed in the entire wow. county for that season. So, you know, people think of Missouri as this turkey mecca, and sure. it certainly has been. But there are pockets of Missouri turkey mm-hmm. country that is that is pretty sparse. And so that's that's sort of the um, that's sort of the 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 place where I grew up and, and learned to hunt. It was it was tough to kill one, and it was and it, the rarity of it kind of drove my passion. But I was also very lucky in that I only lived about an hour and a half from southeast Kansas. Mm-hmm. And if folks know much about southeast Kansas in the mid-90s to early 2000s, that's when the population were just skyrocketing there. And so I had family that, that owned property and, and had friends uh, uh, that, that had land. So basically we had a lot of land to access. And so I could go over there and in an hour and a half be in some of the best turkey hunting you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So that just drove that passion. And, and when I was in, when I was in college, what I wanted to do, I always looked up to the turkey biologist in Missouri. I thought that was the coolest job in the world. And that's the job that I aspired to when I was in college, I yep. wanted to be a turkey biologist. And for whatever reason, uh, grad school, I, I got a project working on prairie chickens, and, and we all know that I love to, to upland bird hunt. And that's just how my career evolved, kind of evolved away from turkeys and more into the upland world. But the cool thing about that is is there's a ton of overlap oh, man, between yeah. the upland world and turkeys as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So 
that's sort of my background as as a as a turkey hunter, as somebody that's had appreciation for turkeys my entire life, and um, has seen the ups and downs of, of turkey populations, and, and and wants to wants to see them succeed. So, so that said, let's talk about um, sort of the annual life cycle. So, right now, turkeys are still in sort of in that that winter flock mentality. Um, gobbler groups are still, um, you know, doing their thing. Hen and poult groups are still doing their thing. They're starting to be, they're starting to intermingle a little bit. Gobblers are starting to strut. They're starting to gobble. There's daylight day length is getting longer. So all of these triggers that are telling the gobblers, Hey, things are fixing to, to happen are, are going. And, and gobblers are really keyed into day length in terms of what gets them motivated to start gobbling and to start strutting, but they're still in these in these large groups. And one of the things that I see, and we'll get talk to it, talk about it more when we get to the winter, is is that, and I've heard it from from other folks, and, and I've seen it in a lot of the areas that I manage, is where turkeys are right now are not necessarily where they're going to be during turkey season. Mm, for sure. So. So these birds in the wintertime make these make these movements. Sometimes they're long range movements, depending on the subspecies you're talking about and, and the habitat quality. And, and sometimes they're, they're fairly short range movements. But but from what I've what I've experienced is these these winter groups, these late winter groups tend to be in different areas than they will be in the spring. But it won't be long when they'll start to split up, when these hen groups will start to split up. Gobbler groups will start to split up, and they'll start expanding throughout the habitat and filling in pockets of of timber, pockets of property where they're not necessarily at now. For instance, there's one area that I manage in southwest Missouri that if you went there now, you would you would see and, and really hear no sign of birds. They're on the sort of the southern edge of the of the management area, down along the river, mm-hmm. but about the third or fourth week in March, you'll start seeing them populate these more isolated upland woodlands. And these, what these hens are doing is they're moving to better breeding habitat, habitat that provides more resources for them to prepare for egg laying and nest construction and better brood habitat. And the gobblers aren't far behind. So that's kind of where we're at now. And folks probably are still seeing these birds in these winter flocks, but a lot of times you'll see gobblers strutting in the morning. Go out this time of year, you'll still hear gobblers. You're, you'll begin to hear gobblers start to gobbling. So they're feeling their oats, and it, they know yeah. it's, it's fixing to happen. I, I was seeing today on uh, a couple images on trail camera that uh, seeing birds on, on a new camera, just like you're talking about, mm-hmm. a new location. Um, and then it was a mixed flock. It was gobblers and hens. And this yeah. is a large pronounced ridgetop that birds are mm-hmm. very commonly on in early fall. Um, and then acorns, they, they kind of dry up and birds move off this ridge. And then coming back into spring, it is a very, very well-known, well-established um, roosting location for Lots of gobblers and hens will be in and around off the different kind of spur ridges from here, yep. from this exact yep. location. So um, everything that you were saying there leading into this time of year, um, we, I saw today in one single picture. So it's very yep. cool to see that um, 
because now they're expanding out from this large congregation of where, I mean, 16 to 18 longbeards have been, as well as a a monstrous group of hens, 40, 50 hens have been at. So we're starting to see that break up and them occupy these different um, locations. And and I think that, I I may have this term maybe wrong, um, Frank, but, expanded lek is that is that yeah let's talk about that term because because that yeah a couple years ago that was that was new to me um from a turkey world of things there's lek Mm -hmm. is is a common world uh word for prairie chickens um and Mm -hmm. and sage grouse correct is that right yeah so so bring that terminology into what it is we're seeing in in the daily movements now of turkeys and and then now throughout the rest of the spring too. Yeah, so that's cool that you mentioned that. So so the real pioneering work that's been done with with this idea of these exploded leks or these expanded leks is is Dr. Michael Chamberlain out of Georgia. And you guys or we have had him mm-hmm. on the podcast in the past. Um, he's a he's a super wealth of information, and I have um, corresponded with him via email because the, this whole idea of this turkeys being a lecking species is a is a fascinating one to me but it also could have potential impacts on our management of the resource yes. so um to back it up when i was in grad school of course i was doing work on greater prairie chickens and they they have a lek and and a prairie chicken lek or a sage grouse lek or a sharp-tailed grouse lek is is the the sort of quintessential lek where males will show up to a certain area every morning and they'll display at this area so they'll have a they'll have a large area where the males show up and within that each male has his own little territory so they break the large area into sub areas and the males display so prey chickens dance um sharp tails dance sage grouse do their display and then the hens come come to the lek um they come so what happens is the males tend to come earlier in the year mm-hmm. and then the males or the females tend to come later on in the spring so this is so males will start showing up in leks in february and march females will start showing up in late march and april right so the females will walk through these leks and then they'll observe the males and they'll choose the male that they want to breed with this is a very common breeding strategy for prairie type grouse and then forest grouse in Europe have sort of the same thing. And as I was doing some research on that, I came across a paper that was done in the seventies in Texas where a researcher in Texas documented and he hypothesized that Rio Grande's down there were, were displaying lecking type behavior. So every morning he was watching these gobblers, they would pitch down, go to the same sort of strutting area every day. Females would come through and watch the gobblers display, do their thing, and then it would either choose to breed with the male or not, and then the birds would eventually go off. Well, it's very similar to what prairie chickens do. I mean, yeah. it's, it's I mean, if you look at it, that's, that's kind of what they're doing. So what Dr. Chamberlain has found is, and this is the magic of radio collars, sure. is as he's dis- dis- deployed radio collars on these gobblers, these gobblers are setting themselves up across the landscape 
in sort of a lek type situation, but it's it's an exploded lek or an expand, expanded lek. So the males are, are are congregating, but not in a small area, but in a wide wider landscape. So uh, a male may be over here on this ridge, and that's kind of where he occupies. Another male on this finger, another male over here occupies this other little spur ridge. So they kind of distribute themselves across the landscape. So it's exploded. It's not a, con a confined lake like a prairie chicken, but they gobble, they display from that area, and females come through. So it's it's a lecking type situation, but it's it's exploded, it's expanded um, from from what we see on the prairie. So that's the mating strategy. And forced grouse, not to get down in the weeds, but forced grouse in Europe do do the same thing mm -hmm. so his research has uh, and, and he has some fascinating publications about this his research is is showing that 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 these turkeys especially these eastern turkeys and woodland type landscapes are displaying this ex exploded lek sort of breeding system now what does that what that has to do with with social structure and dynamics of harvest is yet to be known but the the key thing is is states have always have, have never managed their wild turkey resource based on this sure this is fairly new information so what if knowing this um gives us a, knowing this information certainly and, and knowing how these leks operate and how these birds distribute across the landscape and the dynamics behind it are really going to give once once the the folks that are really in the research dive into this are really going to help state agencies have a better idea of how to manage harvest, how to manage season timing and season length, and how to manage the resource because we're, we've got new information that we never knew. So we've been managing turkeys for 60 or 70 years not realizing that they were exhibiting this lecking behavior. Sure. So it could change how we, how we manage. But that kind of information is cool to know because – you know, if, if a gobbler is is has his exploded lek or his expanded lecking territory on this spur ridge, and that's where he's going to be, and that helps a hunter to know, hey, that, that may be where I want to set up. This is that bird's display territory. If I can figure out how to get into this territory and, and hunt it a certain way, that gives a hunter a better idea of maybe how to approach that bird and kill it. So totally. any kind of that information will certainly help hunters. It'll also help how we manage turkeys going forward. It's really, really fascinating and, and important research they're doing. Yes, it has a lot of implications to the manager and the hunter. I mean, I think anybody who's who's hunted turkeys more than a season knows that there's just some areas that um, it's difficult to call turkeys into or, or mm -hmm. call turkeys out of. Um, and I think that, you know, applying some hunting observations, someone who's experienced maybe that frustration would say, yes, I'm a believer in the exploded yeah. lek because yeah. I, I couldn't pull that gobbler off of that. A lot of times we talk about, oh, there's hens or oh, they just sit there and gobble. They just sit there and gobble back and forth. You can, you know, yeah. see them strutting, going back and forth and, and then they'll gobble, mm -hmm. you know. That's what they're doing. That is that yeah. is the display. That is That is an area that they're safe, that they have adequate ability to um display themselves but then cast their vocalizations off these high points into larger areas so they have the best chances of breeding 
absolutely right. It is a it is a breeding strategy that that is working. So they're setting up on an area, and we've all seen it as turkey hunters. We know when we go out in the morning, a lot of times we can tell ourselves or we can you know ask tell our hunting buddy like, hey, there'll probably be a gobbler over here on this ridge goblin. There's been one over here the last four or five mornings. Mm-hmm. We generally know where the gobbler, if we've scouted it or hunted it long enough, we generally know how these gobblers are distributed across the landscape because they they tend to sort of not necessarily the same tree but the same general area and so if they're pitching down and they're displaying and hens are coming to them you know looking you know doing doing what hens do coming to them and and if that strategy has been working and that is their that is their breeding strategy we're doing something completely opposite to try to get that bird to leave that that goes against and we've all talked about it but that goes against their nature we've talked about it but now i think we have a better understanding of why it is Mm -hmm. it's in if this the exploded leck if this lecking breeding dynamic um system is is how things are playing out um then it's hardwired into the into the bird into the into the species itself this has been the way that they have attracted mates, it's hard to change that if it's been hardwired into their system. You know, this is the breeding strategy, and we're trying to do something completely different. For, for instance, so, one, one of the most common techniques that I may do is, you know, and I and this is why even though I, I kill a lot of birds or we all harvest a lot of birds during mid-morning to middle of the day is – Although I, I could miss the roost time uh, when they're gobbling on on the roost first thing in the morning, even though I may not be killing the birds off the roost, it gives me an inventory of where birds were located at mm-hmm. on the roost, and I may say, okay, well if I don't if I don't go to that bird first thing in the morning, um, I've got an inventory of where he was um, roosted at, and then I'll circle back and get into that area later in the morning because I know that, okay, he selected that area. He felt comfortable. He felt safe. There's a reason he was there. And I'm going to go back in there once the bird's down and off the ground. If I don't harvest something else elsewhere, I'm going to go back in there because it's probably a a likely chance that I can call that bird into the area that they've selected. And so again, like that's very, very common of a tech hunting technique again, but it makes sense from, just the nature of that bird and just the likelihood or opportunity to call them into an area that they know very well and is advantageous for them to display themselves as well as continue to cast their vocalizations out. Yeah. Right. And so I'm, I'm kind of what I'm going to say now is more speculation, more Mm -hmm. hypothesis in my mind. Sure. So don't, you know, this isn't, this isn't pure research. (laughs) Um, if you look at the prairie chicken example, so prairie chickens will do their thing in the morning on the lek. The females will come into the lek. The, there'll be some breeding going on, maybe, depends on if the, if the female likes. And, and she may visit multiple leks mm-hmm. in one day. Mm-hmm. So um, depending on you know the time of year, she may visit four or five leks. And, and that also depends on the density of the prairie chickens. But, um, but about 9.30 or 10 o'clock, things kind of cool off the hens stop coming into the legs and the males start spreading out through the grasslands and feeding well 
but here's the cool thing is is there is some we don't know how much but there are some off-leck breeding that goes on with prairie mm -hmm. grass so mm -hmm. if a male is just hanging out through the prairie at noon and runs into a female and she's in the mood to mate there's some off-leck breeding that goes on kind of so opportunistic yeah, absolutely. I yep. wonder if that's if that's what's going on with with these gobblers. These these males are on their leck, essentially their their little territory, early in the morning. Females come in and out as they will, and as things kind of cool down at nine thirty or ten, the males kind of, you know, walk, you know, are going through the landscape feeding or whatever they're doing. They may be more susceptible to a call or to go outside of their territory because they're not on the lek anymore and here's an opportunity for an off lek um mating situation sure so that may be how we we are more successful at calling them in in that 9 30 10 o'clock because they're not tied to their lekking territory they're just moving more across the landscape at will and mm -hmm. maybe more receptive. so we sort of see that same thing in prairie grouse and if the lek thing holds up for turkeys, that that may explain some of that. But again, that's just thinking off the top of my head. Certainly, no, it it, it all makes sense. sense. It, it, yeah, no, I, I'd certainly agree. So so we we really kind of hit. I think we got from March to April, May, um, in in the the behavior of quite a bit of turkeys, um, and specifically males, what they're doing you know, yeah. on, on the roost, gobbling, strutting, spitting and drumming pitching down, continuing to gobble, strut, trying to gobble, have casting their, their vocalization out there to attract hens to them, not mm -hmm. not necessarily go to hens, but bring them to them um, and then begin to breed and display. And, and if you will, Frank, real quick, kind of talk on some of the new research discussing the, the pecking order, um, which is very common among birds, but the, the pecking order... Um, that turkeys, gobblers may have, how they're doing that through this time frame and then throughout the spring, and then we'll get into nesting. Yeah, so, you know, the pecking order is is something that is um, set up or developed um, over over a long period of time, and mm -hmm. it's there's a pecking order of males, as we know, and then there's a pecking order of hens. And, and when, you, hunted, when you say a long period of time, this can be... A lifetime, correct? Yeah. yeah. This is this yeah. is not done in, in 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 a matter of a couple weeks or days. Nope. This is yeah, a lifetime is, of turkeys. Yeah, this may be like an everyday thing where mm -hmm. where this pecking order is maintained and an opportunity maybe to move up or get knocked down may present itself on a daily basis sometimes. Mm -hmm. But you know we we are all familiar with gobblers having it. But if we if we've spent any time turkey hunting and watched a group of hens feeding in a field. Sure. We know that there's a hen pecking order too. There's mm -hmm. hens that are that are more dominant. And um, what we don't know, and this is some really cool stuff that Dr. Chamberlain is 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 um, researching, is um, how we really don't know because this pecking order sets up over time. We we really don't have a great idea of what harvest does. So if we harvest, say the dominant gobbler within that area, does it or does it not sort of mess up the breeding dynamics? I don't know that we we really know that 100% yet or to the effect or, or, or the magnitude of, of the effect that it may have on the dynamics. And I heard him speak um, the other day 
And um, he was saying that just, you know, if you see a couple of gobblers strut in, one's strutting and one's not, you really don't know based on that small encounter which one is the dominant bird. We mm -hmm. all think that the strutting gobbler is the dominant bird. Well, he argues that maybe it is or maybe it's not. We would have to observe those two birds over a much longer period of time to be able to know that. Sure. And then we, do we make the decision, you know, some may argue, well, don't shoot the, we all want to shoot the strutter, right? Yeah. Well, some may argue then don't shoot the strutter because then you're, you're killing a subordinate bird. Well, just from that brief encounter, Dr. Chamberlain argues that we really don't know. So the, the bottom line is, is these, these pecking order is di is dynamic and we really don't know because we don't think we've really researched it. We really don't know what harvest does to that pecking order. Now, if I can say maybe if a if several gobblers were shot in a, in a small area starting early in the season, mm -hmm. that would probably have a much higher impact on, on the social dynamics, on potential breeding effort than if fewer gobblers were killed later in the season. So say, you know, like mid to late April when most of the hens are nesting probably doesn't mess up breeding dynamics as much as say first part of March or mid March, I guess most seasons open March 15th. So killing multiple birds on a property March 15th through 20 may have a higher impact on social dynamics and, and, and nesting success and, and, and breeding dynamics and all those, all those parameters and say shooting those same birds, you know, 20th of April. So I think we can say that with some confidence, but what we don't know yet and what, and that's one of the things that they're really working on is, is to see how harvest you know, timing of harvest and harvest rate. So how many birds are killed and when they're killed, how that is impacting what's going on on the hen side, because that could have a huge impact down the road. Absolutely. If, um, if we're, if we're doing something as hunters, if we're making choices on gobblers that are, that are going to impact our population down the road, we need to know that we need that information. The state agencies need that information to make wiser choices on season dates and season links and harvest and, um, you know, season bag limits and, and those things like that. So, so those are, those are all things that, that are important. And one of the things about Missouri, Missouri has tended to be a very conservative state from that standpoint. Right. As you know, Missouri opens very late from, from, you know, the standpoint of most Southern or Southeastern states, we typically open around the, the 20th of April um, when, um, when most, when a lot of the hens have already, uh, either initiated a nest and are starting to incubate, or they're right in that process of laying, um, a clutch of, of clutch of eggs. And that, that was a relic from when Missouri had a, had a growing and struggle, but a struggling, but a growing population. We were first starting to open seasons. We wanted to be super careful about how we did this because this was new territory right i mean we'd never we this was you know spring turkey hunting was was something at least a regulated spring turkey hunting was something brand new and so the state wanted to be pretty conservative on that other states have chosen to open earlier and have a higher bag limits um 
And so the, the real question now is, is given the decline of eastern wild turkeys across the range, what are some of these differing season timings and bag limits? What effect, if any, are they having on populations down the road? So that that's going to be a really cool um, thing to be watching in terms of the research going forward. And I think that as we often and commonly, t- I guess, commonly talk about, on on any land legacy podcast is is there's more than than what meets the eye let's say with nature there's there's complexity to everything that is organized and it's organized in a fashion um or operates in a fashion that is pretty um gosh it's it's deep it takes some understanding to to, um you know understand fully what happens and the effect it's not it's again it's it's not a linear deal where I shoot one bird. That's one removed from um, the population. You know, what we're talking about is you may shoot a bird early in the season and sure you removed it, but now you actually decrease the opportunity for many of the other birds on the landscape to reproduce um, as effectively as they could have if you had just waited several weeks to harvest that one bird that you did. And so, again, this with the social dynamic of yes. birds and the, the hierarchy that they operate on, we we have to be mindful of this as hunters. We always say we're conservationists. We, that's a very common term uh, a lot of people want to hitch their wagons to. But, but we have to understand exactly what the bird is is what they're doing, how they operate to make these management and hunting decisions. And and what you just described is very, very important to know. So in Missouri, we have that shorter season, three-week season, and it's very delayed in opening, comparatively speaking. But in addition, we have a three-week season, but you can kill two birds within the season, but only one turkey can be killed in that first week of yeah. season you can't go and kill that's two right. birds and that's again to to get more birds through the breeding season not interrupt that um that that harvesting and the social hierarchy within the flock that's on the landscape have one during the first week and then go and kill a second one in the second or third week or in the second and third week you can kill two birds so right but only one per day only one exactly only one per day yeah and so um i think that that We'll come. We'll see in the next few years a lot of states changing, and and uh, mimicking a harvest structure and season structure similar to that, because well, research right. is beginning yeah. to support that that has a a very solid um, scientific basis behind that. And you look at some states of like Nebraska and Kansas, who in their latitude of things have opened very early compared to speaking to some of the other states surrounding them. And they are seen on a scale of decline compared to, let's say, Missouri, a much sharper decline in mm-hmm. their turkey numbers in the past five years than than states like Missouri, who, who have this yeah. season structure and more of a delayed um, opening. So it's just, it's all fascinating. I, I don't think even at this point with this research and with, you know, the, the grass and understanding that someone could say, yep, that's exactly what it is. Again, it, there's so many factors that, that play into it, but I feel confident that we're narrowing things down and really beginning to understand how from a turkey 
season structure, how they operate. If if we have, as hunters want to make and change the course of things that we can decrease our influence in a negative way to what we may be doing um, in the harvest side of things. And then as we begin to talk about nesting and brood rearing and everything else, we can increase our management of the, of the birds with, with the additional research that we're getting. So, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And and that's, that's, that's the thing about wildlife research is, um, and, and as we as hunters and conservationists, we, we need to be supportive of wildlife research. It, it, it's a fairly, so it's a fairly young field. If you look in, in the, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the scheme of things, um, and we have necessarily had to start hunting these species or wanted to start hunting these species like like wild turkeys. Once they recovered from the dark days of the 30s and 40s, once they recovered, we wanted to start hunting these species. And 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 we did so with the best knowledge that we have. Sure. But what but research and the, the technology we have with GPS collars and, and all of this, this new um, this new modern re- way that we can remotely monitor these birds um, is giving us some some insight that we never had before, and it may tell us a story that we may not want to hear. It may yeah. tell us that we as state agencies or we as hunters have been sourced in a manner that's not sustainable or in a manner Correct. that's not the best for that species. It's our responsibility to look at the science, to look at it critically, not just accept it because it's it's on its face, but also not dismiss it if it says something that we don't want to hear. We need to be critical of it, but also if it's telling us as hunters and conservationists that we may need to move away from how we've done things in the past, if we want to ensure robust populations and resilient populations for our kids, then we're going to have to make some hard choices and, and do that. And some states may find themselves having to to change some season limits and, and season start dates and all the dynamics behind that if they want to have resilient populations. And and I think and I'm confident that, that hunters, I mean, hunters and conservationists have always been on board with science based management of the wildlife and that's one of the things that sets north america apart is hunters have been on board with a science-based approach sometimes that science tells us tells us that hey we're doing the right thing other times mm-hmm. it tells us we need to we need to change and i hope if that's the way we're going with turkeys which i think it it is all the research is is, is leaning that direction i would hope as hunters we would we would you know, accept that and, and be ready to take on that challenge, whatever it may be. Maybe we don't start as early as we used to. Maybe we start later. Um, that's the way it is, and so be it. We need to be we need to be willing to to, to grab onto that and to support um, the decisions that are being made because they're being made largely on a scientific basis. There's some yeah. politics behind all of that, but still. It's largely being made on a scientific background. Certainly, certainly. So, so take us through um, nesting behavior, Frank. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, one of the things that that we we we, we focus on during turkey season is is the gobblers, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's what we want to do. We want to we want to hear these gobblers. We want to see them and strutting and hear them drumming and spitting and all that. But 
man, it's about the hen. It's it's about future populations. It's about that hen and her getting the resources that she needs to be able to nest on time when conditions are optimal and to be able to produce the the, the healthiest eggs and the, and the highest number of eggs. And that starts with early successional habitat. I don't know how many times we've talked about it on this podcast, <laughs> but they're looking for that early successional habitat, that green vegetation forbs, the early insects that are coming out. They, are, they, they need resources to get them through this stressful time, which is egg production yep. and, and laying. I mean, this, this is a tough time. So you're, if you're looking to produce 12 to 15 eggs, um, you're going to need a lot of resources. And so, man, I, I'm, I'm, when I'm thinking about turkey management, I'm thinking about resources needed for, for hens to, to get ready to nest, the proper nesting habitat and then brood habitat once they hatch. So early early successional habitats, whether it be in, in open fields or woodlands, is super critical. And that really is a bottleneck with, with a lot of our um, habitat in, on the eastern wild turkey side is, is our woodlands where a lot of our turkeys live are, um, are not compatible with that life cycle for the hens. There's not enough early successional habitat on the ground. There's not enough forbs. There's not enough green leafy material that's available for the hens at the right time. And um, man, they, they need it. And, and you know, the, the thing is, is, you know, a lot of that and, and hunters, you know, and, and, and people that, that have turkey hunted kind of some hunters, not all, but some kind of equate gobblers and turkeys and with, with these big woods. And, mm-hmm. and that even set back wildlife, wild turkey restoration for a long time. Yeah. In Missouri, Missouri hesitated to put turkeys in the north part of the state, which is agricultural and prairie based, because, man, all the turkeys were in the big woods. That's where they live. That's what we thought they needed. But once turkeys went up there and they had access to early successional habitat, during the nesting season, man, they just took off and they exploded. So this early successional habitat is super important. So I'm, I'm thinking of, of native grasses and forbs that's anyway from, from waist high to about knee high, enough to hide a turkey, but she can stick her head up and see out of it. Uh, that's open at ground level so she can easily move, easily scratch and find insects, easily reach the forbs. And then when she hatches her brood, they can easily move around. And she's going to be looking for nest sites in these places, oftentimes maybe under a downed tree or a, a, a thicket of brambles or um, just in, in, a, in a clump of, of grasses that, that is tall enough that she can bend over her head, something that has a little bit of overhead protection, a little bit of overhead cover. And closed canopy hardwoods with a forest floor of, of leaves, that doesn't cut it. That does not make good nesting habitat. And even if they are forced to nest there, that success is going to be exceedingly low in, in a situation like that. So this early successional habitat is super critical for at this time of the year when the hens are starting to make their nests incubate and then hatch them and and one of the things this is relatively new research too that it's it's seeming that it suggests that a lot of times hens are 
moving across a landscape. And then as they are beginning to prepare to get into the nesting, um, let's say, life cycle, when it's time to drop an egg or begin to lay eggs, it's more or less, oh, I got a feeling. I got to drop an <laughs> egg. It's. I always grew up th- hearing and believing that hens, they're leaving gobblers because they're out and they're looking for nest sites. They're looking for specific areas where they were saying, I'm going to come back to here and lay an egg. Opposed mm-hmm. to walking and feeding on the landscape and then saying, oh, yep, nope, it's time. Let me go look, search, search, and I'm going to go squat and, and find a place to, to lay an egg. And, and then that become their nest where they're returning daily as they're dropping yep. more eggs and then, you know, sitting on that nest for the next 28 days. So yeah. with that thought process, though, to me, thinking I, as a land manager, I need to have that type of habitat throughout my entire property. I can't oh, yeah. just Absolutely. rely on on one five-acre field to say, well, there's nest habitat right there. Well, what happens yeah. if, if the hen is t- 200 yards away from that and she gets this urge and she starts to build her, or not build her nest, but begin to nest and lay eggs there for incubation, she's not in that five acres. So we can't, nope. as, as, a, as a property manager, landscape manager, think, well, I've got that box checked. It's there on a property. It's more or less, if we want to have the best type of nesting success possible, we need that everywhere. We need yeah. it readily available. Um, That's right. And, and, and I That's think right. that then moves the needle. But what, what, is, what is nice, though, I guess, when turkeys are foraging throughout the day and, and a hen is preparing to, to lay eggs, luckily there is the crossover, right, where, where there should be foraging, where this green leafy material is, um, that's probably decent nesting habitat. And so, therefore, hopefully they're going to spend their time, let's, I'm air quoting that five acres of early successional, by foraging. However, we often still see birds in in areas that, you know, they're going to spend their whole day in five acres. They're everywhere in and around the right. property. So, it's just that further implication to, if you have woodlots, manage them to different degrees. Manage them to, um, you know, reduce the canopy down to to 30% and other ones reduce it down to 60% and then burn one every two years, burn the other on every four years. And at that yep. point you start to have this checkered board of regeneration across the whole place, AKA diversity, which we always talk about. Now yep. we've got places on the property where wherever the hen finds herself, there's adequate nesting cover for her to be able to be successful. That yeah, to me has been a right. huge light bulb of, wow, I need to really rethink the way we're managing for turkeys. Again, it's not enough to say that habitat is, is here on a property. Um, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't work like that. It, it yeah, works in a right. way of diverse cover everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and and the, so the concept of usable space there mm-hmm. comes in, and that's typically thought of in a in a bob white quail sense but it but it really ex, has, you know, yeah. applies to everything that we're thinking about 
you know, the places where, where turkeys are the best is where they have large areas of usable space and usable space for yes. a turkey has to include early successional habitat, green leafy material, um, just everything that they need to get them through that nest and brooding season. That usable space for turkeys has to include that. And in areas where those are scattered throughout the landscape, as you say, where hens have it available on the north property, on the south end of the property, everywhere they go is 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 super important. Um, that that really is is a way to, to think about management. Is is when you're thinking about turkeys, um, think well, I've got this hundred acre block of timber. That's turkey habitat. Well, no, it's not unless it has right. some kind of herbaceous um, layer at, at the ground level, unless, unless it's getting sunlight, unless it's producing forbs and native grasses, it's not turkey habitat. It may supply some roosting cover, and it may may supply some place for turkeys to move through or to shade up on a cool day, but that's, I mean, what, that's 2% of their needs, really. Yeah, that absolutely. Doesn't, that doesn't amount to anything. So so this <clears throat> this nesting and brood habitat is super critical. And, and, and so once, once we move on through this, get through May, June, July, I mean, this is the critical time when these, when these little guys are starting to hatch Mm -hmm. out of the egg and that first two weeks of hatching, whenever it may be late April in parts of the South through July and even early August up into places like Wisconsin is, is a time when, when, turkeys are super vulnerable before they can thermal regulate effectively and yep. have to rely on mama to, to protect them from, um, from wind and rain. Yep. And then before they can fly, that's super critical. If they can't fly, I mean, once they can fly, research has shown that once, once poults can fly, then survival dramatically increases because they are able to escape predators much more effectively. Certainly. So certainly. Real real quick, incubation's twenty eight days, right? So a hen is yep. sitting on a nest curating these eggs, right? Keeping them at the right optimal heat, allowing them to mature, and then twenty eight days later, after the entire clutch, and a clutch is the number of eggs, right, in a nest, yep. average size ten to fifteen. I would say relatively normal. Once all have been laid that she's going to lay, the incubation period starts, runs 28 days, and then they all hatch at the same time, which is crazy and mind-blowing to me. That's right, yeah. (laughs) In general, but it happens. And then we go into that poult stage uh, where we're talking about the brood rearing stage. They are a brood, the collection of eggs that hatched, that is then the hen's brood. That's why, again, that's how you get that that term um, brood into mm-hmm. realm of, of the life cycles of turkeys and then the habitat uh, from brood, brood rearing habitat. Very specific stuff, but it often finds itself being not only good quality food availability in these areas that have early successional cover, but it also is quality cover to get these birds, whether you said dry fast from being wet in morning dews or protects yep. them um, from the sun, protects them from aerial predators or yep. ground gra- predators along the ground. Um, there's a lot of things that eat turkey nests 
the eggs mm -hmm. and or poults. We know that. Oh. That is that is no surprise. But when you have that quality cover distributed across the landscape where your usable space, like you mentioned, is super high for turkeys, the predation, sure, is still going to occur. That's natural. That's normal. But the number of individuals that, that make it to this brood-rearing stage and then on to two weeks will continue to grow up when the habitat is in place. We can't start pointing fingers at, at all these predators on the landscape when we don't right. have what we can control in place first and foremost. Give them the yep. option. Give them the potential to get through nesting season, to get through to the two-week period when they can fly. That's the when the research is like, we're going to get to survival. We're going we're gonna to get to the point where we're an adult turkey and we're recruited into the adult population to a fall flock. That's when yep. we can count on those birds. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the research, and it's a, it's a sobering, some of the research that's coming out of the Southeast is sobering in terms of nesting success. Yeah. Uh, or, I mean, if you're looking across, across the range of these studies, nesting success is, is in the twenties. And so that's, I mean, that's pretty bad. If, it, if you think about it, that, that is a sobering thought. That's and, nest success. That's not, yeah, that's, that's not, that's, that's not getting them past that next two week stage that's to right. flight. That is that's just right. straight nest success. And I, and I believe that's a lot right. of the research was saying they were, they were classifying nest success. If one egg got to hatch. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's it's not the, the whole clutch. It's one right. single egg. Yeah, that's the standard. We use that in our quail research too. That's mm -hmm. that's the standard of, of nest success. So it's, I mean, that's that's a sobering thought. So that, what that does is that that should really drive home the importance of quality nesting habitat. Now, what these studies don't differentiate when they're talking about an overall nesting success in the twenties is is were what what was the nesting success of these nests that were in quality nesting habitat mm -hmm. so this is just across the range and so as we all know most turkey habitat right now i would consider as poor sure. nesting and brooding habitat yes so yes. what about let's let's just think if we increase the nesting and brood habitat 30 percent across the landscape well, then I imagine we were going to we would see a pretty significant bump or increase in nest success. Absolutely. So the key is, is um, you know, one of the what the researchers are showing is, man, there is a there is a bottleneck. There is a lack of quality early successional nesting and brood habitat. And man, if we can just get that on the landscape, figure out how to get that on a on a larger scale and not maybe a four acre block here or a three acre block there, but I'm, I'm talking about woodlots, mm -hmm. you know, hundred to 200 acre woodlots or more. Um, man, what, what kind of difference could we have in local Turkey populations? And, um, I think we could have profound differences. We can have profound, we can make profound improvements on, on that. And so, you know, even as, as hunters, man, we, we want to see those gobblers. We want to, we want to think about those strutting gobblers and hearing them drum and, and seeing that display. But, Man, we really need to be thinking about what's going on in May, June, July, and how can we improve that aspect of our management? Because right there is the future for turkey hunting. That's where it's going to be made right there. Without so we, a doubt. We really, 
and, and that's the thing is, you know, as turkey hunters, we need to, you know, we, we need to be thinking about as land managers, we need to be thinking about turkeys all the time throughout mm-hmm. the year. And that's the, that's the point of this podcast is, is to talk about the life history needs of turkeys, not only in April when we're sitting against a tree trying to call one in. That's the fun part. We need to be thinking about what these turkeys are doing in August. What are they doing in October? What do they need in December to get them through? We need to be thinking about it in, you know, 24-7 as far as, well, 365 in terms of providing the needs. And, yes. and that's the point of this podcast is to highlight and, and to really drill down and to have a comprehensive look at the, the life cycle of a wild turkey. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, I think we've touched on on the, the and, and I and I. I know future podcasts in this series will drill down better mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on nesting habitat and brood habitat. So we've hit the high point. Let's talk about the, this fall season. So yes. September, October, November, resources are really at their highest point in my mind during yes. this time of year. Um, you know, there, there's there's lots of grain crops available in, in ag land. Um, acorns are starting to, to, to drop oh, hard soft. mass is available, soft Softly. mass is yep. super available. The Forbes are making lots of seeds. So our mm-hmm. Lespedezas, our sunflowers, uh, crotons, all of those cool things that, that these turkeys are eating. Yep. Uh, I mean, this is the time of plenty. So lots of um, insects the, too, still, yeah, still yeah. late in the growing season. Oh yeah. And they're super available. Yes. I, yes. I, I've, I've get a kick out of, I, I've seen gobblers. Um, so like in an October morning mm-hmm. where it had been warm the, the day or two before and their grasshoppers are still out, but yes. it's like 40 degrees that morning, they're sluggish. they are just loading up on grasshoppers because <laughs> they, they can't, and they can't get away from them. Yeah. So they're just, I mean, they're just gorging. Mm-hmm. But then again, what produces those grasshoppers? It's, yeah. it's Forbes. It's, it's early successional. They're not in closed canopy woodlands doing this. That's right. They are in areas with lots of forbs. So even then, you know, when we think, man, there's lots of hard mast, whatever, these high protein food sources are being produced in these open lands. That's it. And, and, and there's, there's, we can't get away from it really um, through, through many portions of the year, even getting into that fall um, time frame that still has its implications of, of, this open landscape that is diverse, full of forbs, that still has the insects, still has all the seed head production. Um, but yes, it's very common that, that wild turkeys are thought of as, as deep timber. Got to have these big woods because you find them in the fall scratching through, you know, underneath of oak trees. And, and um, it, it's true. They certainly will utilize it, but it it's not the make or break at all for wild turkeys. There's so many right. places that turkeys um, persist in that there's not an oak tree present. Well, absolutely. And I think absolutely. that would blow people's mind, but but literally there there's places that we have worked um, that, that there are abundant turkeys and not an oak tree within their range within what they're roosting in with what they're foraging in and on throughout an entire year. They're not present. That's right. So they're making a living on whatever else is available, which could be beach, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. beach nuts in certain certain places, other, you know, hard and soft mast, uh, 
a lot of a lot of forb seeds even grain you know grain crops you know we know turkeys love cornfields and soybeans and whatnot so they can persist on a lot of things but but the key is is they don't necessarily have to be this oak hickory timber bird that that a lot of people have or this mixed oak pine bird that a lot of people think they are they, mm-hmm. they can persist in a lot of places like you said where there where there is not an oak tree inside and and the dynamics of the population are a little bit different there so you know as we get into that that season where the 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 broods have got to about three-quarter grown half to three-quarter grown or more then these hen groups start to form so multiple hens will get together with their broods and they'll be you know, hen and, and brood flocks across the landscape. Gobblers will get into to bachelor groups and they'll be and they'll be across the landscape. And, and so there may be um, they may come into contact with each other in their daily in, in their daily travels, especially if if food resources are fairly limited spatially. But the dynamics of, of turkeys, at least socially, as they distribute themselves across the, the landscape, are different. They're mm-hmm. they're they're more in, in, in like type groups. And, and so the um the the dynamics that we see are a little different. Now their their habitat needs and, and their food needs are, are about the same, but but um and that, that goes to fall hunting a lot where fall hunting is popular. Um one of the biggest uh, probably the biggest cohorts of, of, of what is harvested in the fall are hen and pulp groups that people find, scatter out and then they call back in. I mean, right. gobblers can be successfully killed in that manner too, mm-hmm. but hens with poults are far easier to hunt in that manner. So that's another that's another difference throughout that that turkeys exhibit um, that that other you know game birds don't. I may I may throw out a term that some people haven't heard before, but gregarious is the nature of being like flocked up and i think that's strong the notion and instinct for a hen group with poults to be gregarious in the fall is very very high they want to be that mother hen is still had that tendency to look over the flock watch the flock and be literally the the mother hen and calling very vocal to reassemble that flock if they have been disrupted, um, dispersed. And while, while, I guess while as gobblers, it's very common to see, you know, a large group of gobblers in the fall that you can totally see that. But at the same time, it's not uncommon to see two group, you know, two toms over yeah. here, three over there, four here, one over here by itself out on the landscape doing their thing. Um, yeah. but, especially early in the fall before they get into large winter flocks, you've got 20 birds. There's probably two or three big hens and lots of poults from yeah, this year's yeah. hatch that, all working together. Absolutely. And that's a function of, of the survival mechanism mm-hmm. that, that works for that particular cohort that right. for hens and young birds, young turkeys are vulnerable. The mother hen quickly tries to assemble them into a flock where there's a lot of eyes Mm-hmm. There's a lot of of birds that it will sense predators before maybe a young and inexperienced Jake, yes. um, gangly legged Jake may not be paying attention, but his three year old hen mother is certainly paying attention. Right. And so that that is that is the way that those groups survive. 
and gobbler groups survive in a different manner. They may not. I mean, I've I've busted gobbler groups in the fall and think, oh boy, I've got a good bust on them, mm-hmm. and they have no desire to get back together. Absolutely. So, I've I've done that before and 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 have called them in, yep. but that's pretty rare. Some they just like whatever I you know yeah. I'll I'll hook up with you whenever I see you again. I don't need to run in right when I cross and paths get for protection. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it's it's a different. So they they have different ways. They have different survival mechanisms, and so that that determines how the groupings that they're in, and that's what's made turkeys so successful. Is is that over time they have developed these social structures and these dynamics of survival that have made them made them what they are today and made them so um you know so able to expand into new habitats and 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 to show up in places we never thought turkeys could live Mm -hmm. they they are super super adaptable species as long as all those habitat needs are met yeah absolutely and then that pretty much brings us right into almost the the reassembling of these large winter flocks which can commonly be found when there are high quantity and high quality late winter food sources. If, if, if birds are really having to cover terrain, um, in great distances scavenging, looking for what remains through the winter, you may not see those large winter flocks we're talking about, but when you have a great, let's say crop of, of, uh, red oak acorns on on a slope and that is an isolated pocket you're going to have birds winter there or if you've mm-hmm. got um large food plots that have got grain on them that are that's not harvested a lot of times you will find big groups of turkeys oriented in and around there throughout mm-hmm. the entire winter foraging in there daily um so that that's i i think that it's very much so um focused around food throughout this time. And of course it has its tendency um, as, as late winter gets around and then before they begin to break out during the spring, that social pecking order is, is reestablished. Not necessarily reestablished, but almost reassigned and refreshed coming out of winter and going into spring. Yeah. It's reconfirmed. So, and this, this is a time when you'll see long, long, range movements mm-hmm. of of birds where you know a, a particular property may be full of birds during the summer and fall and then they just overnight seem to disappear and um we we see that typically what we see and, and a lot of folks i'm sure will see this especially where there's areas along where you've got a dynamic where you've got upland ridge systems and then river bottoms that are farmed or cropped. Mm-hmm. What you'll see a lot of times is birds will abandon those upland ridge systems and whatever oaks may be there and whatever scattered food is there, and they'll flock down. And, and the, the movement may be a half mile or it may be multiples of miles, yes. depending on where you're at. And they'll flock up in these grain fields, and you'll see, you know, flocks back in the day, you know, you know, 100 to 200 birds in, in places. Now, as populations have declined, that you don't see those flock sizes as much. But but what you'll see is these long-range movements, and that has implications, too. Because with any species, from a bobwhite quail to a white-tailed deer, the longer that they move or, or, or the longer-range movements that they make across the landscape, the less 
the, the lower their survival rate is, or there's a higher chance of mortality from accidents, mm-hmm. you know, whatever that may be, getting run over by a car, whatever, uh, predators, because they're in, they're in different habitats. They don't know the landscape as well, so they're more vulnerable to predation. They find they get, enter new predators or whatever the case may be. When birds or mammals or whatever, when they move longer distances, mortality tends to, tends to increase. Right. And so what we'll start to see is in these long-range winter movements, we'll see mortality increase. And that has, that has some implication for, for habitat management. And we recently did a plan with a gentleman where he noticed that his birds did that. He had plenty right. of bird through the fall. They disappeared and went to a certain place in the winter. And he was interested in keeping birds on his place in the winter. And we recommended one of the things to do was, was to increase his winter food resources. That may not guarantee the birds stay there. There may be some kind of long ingrained migratory movement that this particular flock does. But if he can keep them on his property, keep them on high quality food as long as possible, then he'll reduce the number of birds he loses through mortality that winter. Yep. Yep. For sure. I, I, I think that really provides everyone with a good understanding of turkeys, what they do. Obviously, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive very deep into these different key life traits. Um, and I know we're going to have Dr. Chamberlain on um, in the coming weeks as well, gentlemen, who, sure. who heads up a lot of the research that, that we've been talking about today. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to be a fantastic resource. Uh, one of the things that we didn't get to cover on this podcast that we will um, in the weeks to come too is with all the information we're talking about, then what do we do? in a farm setup. How do we manage yeah. this bird with all of the these different life life history traits that they go through in in a single given year in an ideal situation? What does a farm look like? Yeah, maybe percentage-wise we'll we'll throw out I'd like to see this much in in hardwoods. I'd like to see this much in an old field early successional habitat type. I'd like to see this in a managed woodland. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but really go through those types of, of management guidelines for us. And again, that ideal world of, I've got, I've got a farm with loads of turkey numbers. Here's what I'm looking for. So we'll cover that in the, in the weeks to come. But, but Frank, thank you so much for your time and your expertise, um, knowledge base on this, on this wonderful bird. Is there anything else that you want to wrap up with? before we close out you know I, I i don't think so i think this is a an exciting series that we're we're embarking on yes. um i think it's of course timely mm-hmm. timely in that spring turkey season's coming up and that we have our our minds on on birds but also timely given the 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 large scale decline in wild turkeys that that we are seeing um, essentially from Kansas East. Right. It's, it's a troubling trend, um, especially knowing the heights that we, we had and, and the excellent hunting that we had and the opportunities that that afforded new hunters to, to get out in the field and experience something that, that, is, that is unmatchable in, in the natural world. And to see that 
um, decline as it has is is sad. Yeah. And it's timely that as as we here at Land and Legacy, we folk as we put focus on species like bobwhite quail that are declining. Um, it's important that we focus not only focus on on the good things, on the good times, on on growing big deer and and and, and all of the cool stuff that we do as as wildlife managers and, and hunters, but we also need to be thinking about things that aren't going so well. Um, sure. Because if we ignore them, the problem's not going to fix itself. So, I think we are. We, this is a very timely and very necessary um, series, and I think people will really enjoy it as we really break down what turkeys need. Um, they are super dynamic birds, super cool. I mean, just just fascinating, almost as cool as a bobwhite quail. I'll say. <laughs> so this will be a this will be a fascinating. Um, uh, uh, series and I'm I'm glad to be a part of it. Yes, no, we're we're glad that you are a part of it, and and we'll have Kyle on here as well to talk about him. No, he's very. We all share very uh, similar passions when it comes to to the wild turkey, and I, I want to remind people that changing uh, the landscape to improve bird numbers in your area is not going to happen by accident. That's right. This is going to have to happen by intentional decisions and intentional management to see changes occur for the positive. We may see changes mm-hmm. occur to as they could possibly continue to decline in certain areas. Mm-hmm. But if we want to make a positive impact, we have to do it very intentionally and with strict management um goals in mind that this is not just going to happen because we went out and we did a little bit of tsi or 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 we 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 did a little bit of food plotting no that's not gonna that's not gonna move the needle it's not gonna change Mm -hmm. things we need to impact the landscape and we need to share this valuable information that we have at our fingertips and and rely on that information to guide our our management decisions on whatever property we have access to and so be as you're taking all this information in throughout the next couple of weeks, be mindful that again it's gonna take intentional actions to to see these changes and and they can and they will happen when you are intentional. Um so it's not something that you're just gonna like I said, fall into, accidentally happen. Um it it's going to take intentional moves to, to um, see turkey numbers increase. So appreciate everyone listening. Thanks again, Frank, for, for your knowledge. And yep. I'm ready for next week already. It's going to be fun. <laughs> um, but we're going to continue talking about turkeys throughout the spring. And by, before we know it, we'll be hunting them here in Missouri. That's right. That's right. Well, good deal, sir. I appreciate it. Yep. Take care, Matt. All right. There you have it. There's a wrap up. Week two on the Turkey Management Series. Thank you, Frank, for, for joining us and taking that time um, to share your knowledge and passion about the wild turkey. Guys, be continuing to check out this series because we're going to have some amazing guests coming on in, in the next few weeks. And so um, we're excited to bring you that information. We're excited to be talking about conservation of the wild turkey and conservation habitat 
principles, techniques that revolve around increasing or maintaining, sustaining wild turkey numbers in your area. It's an awesome, awesome bird, and um, the habitat that it requires is so similar um, to the needs of other animals. So we can rally around as, as hunters in general and as land lovers in general to improve the success of the wild turkey on our landscapes of the property that we hunt, manage, own. So thank you guys so much for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at info at or check us out on social media. Um, we're on Facebook, Instagram. Send us a message, and we will be back in touch with you guys. Thanks so much. Send us a rating on iTunes, and uh, we'll catch you here next week. Yeah.